food forager. Changing the way the world eats by making ethical easy. <laughs> that sounds like a very good idea. Fair food forager. Hello and welcome to the Fair Food Forager and Friends show. Today I'm talking to Colin Woodruff. He's a geographer and coastal geomorphologist. I get my inner nerd on and go back to university where I studied a little bit of this stuff. So we talk about beaches, mangroves, sea level rise and all sorts of different things that affect our coasts and we all love the coast. So let's chat to Colin and find out a little bit more. This podcast is brought to you by the Fair Food Forager app. It's a sustainable food directory and ethical social media. You can jump on and find ethical food when you're on the road, or you can post what you're up to, food that you're making or growing, or just any sort of environmental appreciation. And it's all full of like-minded people who think just like you. They want a clean and healthy planet. University of Wollongong talking to Professor Colin Woodruff, who is what you would call an expert in coasts. And there's a lot to speak about with coasts, reefs and beaches and mangroves and, and all sorts of things. That's right. Coasts are a, a, marvellous, a marvellous resource. We all enjoy them. And yes, I've been privileged to spend, uh, well, several decades looking at coasts around the world. Mm. And And you studied at at Cambridge in the UK. Yes, that's right. Um, I I was an undergraduate. I went to the University of Cambridge. And um, towards the end of my undergraduate, sitting like this in a a, a tutorial with uh, David Stoddart, Um, he was on the phone and and, uh, interrupting our tutorial and talking and put the phone down and said, well, I've got this project in the Cayman Islands. I haven't got anyone to do it. <laughs> it wasn't quite as simple as that, but anyway, I went on to do a PhD in the Cayman Islands under under his supervision. So that was at the University of Cambridge too. Wow, what a fantastic start! Well, that's what it seemed at the at that <laughs> yeah. time. And as I say, it wasn't as simple as that. He didn't have the funding, and everything. we had to apply, and it was all a bit touch and go. And I would have looked as if I was going to go and off and do something else, but no, I ended up going to the Cayman Islands and studying mangroves and experiencing a lot of mosquitoes as a result. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yes. And what was the particular PhD on? With... So it was on the mangroves. Yeah. Uh, it, was, uh, it was with the Mosquito Research and Control Unit in the Cayman Islands who had been in touch with David Stoddart, uh, and um, they'd been cutting great swathes through the mangroves to put in um, uh, ditches to control the saltwater mosquito problems that they had on the island. And so there was this opportunity to walk through these extensive mangrove areas to look at the substrate underneath because they were digging into it. And, and so my, my study was about uh, mangroves and sea level, past sea level change, something that's um, come back to have greater relevance now that we're talking about future or contemporary sea level change and future sea level change. Mm. And what, what year was that, did you say? Oh, gosh, that was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> that was in, I, uh, my, my thesis that was, was finished in 1980. By which time I was actually had actually just taken up a lectureship in New Zealand at the University of Auckland. Wow! So from the UK to the Cayman Islands to New Zealand. That's right, uh, and then um, I've also spent some time in uh, Louisiana, Louisiana State University in the US, uh, and uh, then I moved to to Australia, where I had five years in Darwin, again looking at primarily mangrove or mangrove environments mm-hmm. in the Kakadu National Park. Um, before I came to Wollongong, which um, where I've been, well, for quite a few, been for more than twenty years now. Yeah. And uh, do you see the same the same types of issues or um, processes that are affecting, say, mangroves in particular, or in all those places? Are there lots of similarities? Or um, yes, well, it, it's interesting as I sort of indicated there a, a moment ago. Um, I had this 
sort of geological interest, very short-term geology, but in the last few thousand years, how had uh, the mangroves changed in the Cayman Islands and uh, have continued in that kind of sphere of looking at the past change that we can interpret from coastal landforms, moved on to look at reefs, to look at estuaries, to look at uh, uh, beaches and, and so on. So uh, a range of different coastal landforms, but t bringing that perspective of, well, how have they changed in the past? And that's got this new relevance, particularly in relation to sea level change, now that we're recognising, well, the changing environment we live in, the climate that is changing, the uh, the sea level that is rising, and consequently needing to answer those questions about, well, how are our coastal systems going, going to respond? So, yes, in a sense, the questions are the same around the world, um, but the answers are, are different. <laughs> And I guess mangroves, uh, they always they have a, a strange place for people because I guess for, for decades we've been removing them because of things like mosquitoes and putting in crazy things like builder's tips and, and just filling them in and building houses on them and things like that. So, but people don't realise how important they are as, as filters. And have you been involved in any sort of, from an environmental perspective, helping to protect areas like mangroves? Um, uh, I suppose I haven't been directly uh, protecting them myself, um, but to but answer that sort of broader question, you're right, of course, that mangroves, salt marshes were really seen as wastelands, as swamps. We use the mm. term mangrove swamp. We don't, we don't use that term. <laughs> we call them you know, wetlands, and they've been recognised. Now, for most of my my scientific career, I guess the values of of these systems have been recognised. In fact, a, an early um, recognition was the role they play as a as a nursery for for wildlife, particularly marine, uh, a nursery for fish, fish breeding. Uh, that they are actually exporting nutrients and and and. Uh, 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 litter uh, the broken down leaves and so on which become the substrate for other organisms that then support a, a marine food web as well as supporting um, birds and, and insects and other sort of terrestrial life so they've been recognized for their ecosystem services but what is interesting with these wetlands is that they're um, now we're recognizing their role increasingly in terms of a sequestration of carbon so one of the the reasons why there's been quite a quite a, uh, a, a growth in interest in coastal wetlands, mangroves primarily, I guess, but also salt marsh, is because they store carbon in their substrate. So mm. they're growing, and and actually one of the things that I became very interested in was the sort of the productivity of these mangroves. We used to put little baskets out to collect the the leaves falling throughout the course of a year to be able to work out how fast these trees were growing how they how many how much leaf litter they were producing and, and that mm. contributing so but what we we now realize is that these intertidal environments actually sequester so the wonderful climate change type term mm. sequester carbon in the substrate so so that what that means is their roots um don't don't decompose uh, because they're in this intertidal yeah. wet environment so Whereas our forests on land um, do have carbon in the soil, and, and soil carbon is an important uh, component of carbon, in the wetlands that carbon stays there. And, and particularly, again, this sort of perspective that I have brought, and, uh, which has been a focus of my, my research, this what's happened in the past, gives us this perspective. So, so for instance, up in the Darwin-Kakadu region, um, the, the Alligator Rivers, we discovered that under these great floodplains, the, the, the black soil plains, that um, they're chock-a-block with, with old mangrove deposits because they used to be extensive mangrove swamps, um, what we call big swamp. Um, and, and so there's a lot of carbon sitting in those, uh, those floodplains, not just beneath the present mangroves, but beneath the floodplains that were mangroves in the past. So, um, and you indicated that um, the way we've used these wetlands as a, a wasteland, um, rarely I suspect building houses, but we've certainly built our major airports uh, on um, 
on areas that were mangrove. If you fly into mm. Cairns, you've become increasingly you're very aware of that, yeah. um, and and one wonders. Uh, what sort of height uh, the resources for the airstrip there and the, uh, have because you you drive uh, into Cairns and you're going through mangroves that are flooded every high spring tide and, uh, and must be very very close to the areas in Cairns that are inundated in the highest tides. Uh, Brisbane has just extended its airport into areas that would have been mangroves in the past and and they've certainly taken into account the freeboard they need in relation to future rise in sea level. Mm. Yeah. Would, so I'm guessing Sydney would have probably been something like that as well? The, uh, um, it was certainly, I suppose, um, areas that uh, would have been intertidal in, in, in the past. So um, in this region of the world, as opposed to North America and, and Northern Europe, uh, which were much closer to the big ice sheets, um, and the history of how the ice sheets have, have melted. In this part of the world, the sea level's been relatively close to its present for the past six or 7,000 years. And that's why we've had these extensive plains that have been able to develop in that time. Uh, interestingly, and it's perhaps beyond what we want to talk about today, but there is evidence that the sea was slightly higher uh, a few thousand years ago mm. uh, in this part of the world. But it's certainly been very close to present, and that's why we've been able to see these extensive coastal plains in, in this part of the world in, in northern Australia. Here, um, locally, for instance, the Shoalhaven, where you've got these extensive dairy areas that mm. are there are infield estuarine deposits. They may have been mangrove. That's much harder to tell down here because we don't have as as uh, biodiverse and, and, and uh, extensive biomass of mangroves that we do up in the northern tropics. Mm. Um, but they've certainly been through that phase of, of estuarine and infield and, and, and now they're, um, they're, they're alluvial plains. They do go underwater, of course, in, some, in the big floods. Um, mm. Presumably just those recent floods we've had have certainly opened the Shoalhaven and, and presumably flooded some of the, the floodplains mm. that uh, in the lower the lower Shoalhaven River. Yeah, I remember when, when I was studying here at Wollongong and going to look at, at Minamara and some of these places where early farming practices was to drain the land and the original landscape in those areas would have been these tiny little trickle streams uh, and then but our uh, first settlers didn't, didn't like the the bogginess of that, so they, they cleared out the water and we end up with the very deep and wide river channels. <laughs> Mobile phones. That's right. Um, interestingly, we've, we've just been out um, filming a video um, to replace the field trip we would be taking our students on in the coming week or two um, around Lake Illawarra. And, mm. and the lake, as as... As you may remember from the, 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 the lectures I would have, have given on this, the Lake Illawarra is at a, quite an early stage of that estuarine infill, whereas the Shoalhaven, being a much bigger river, having brought much more sediment down over the past few thousand years, has filled in its mm. proto-Lake Illawarra. Yeah. And so between Nara and Greenwall Point, there are these extensive plains that um, are infilled at an infilled estuary. And Lake Illawarra is at the, that early stage Mm. It, it's uh, all of our estuaries are sinks for sediment. So mm. um, the what comes down those two creeks, Mullet Creek and, and Macquarie Rivulet, is slowly filling in Lake Illawarra, mm. and that's augmented again by the fact that the tides and the waves are bringing sand in from the coast. So mm. hen hence the reason for the the need for the lake entrance works, uh, or at least that was partly addressing the closing off and, and the reopening of the lake's entrance. Since the entrance works have been put in, there's a much more efficient movement of through the tidal processes of sand into the lake, mm. and that's become a problem in, in several ways. Um, and so we, we were videoing that uh, last week uh, and, and, and making the point that nature is gradually going through the processes that would happen in an estuary, uh, but that our human actions have augmented those. So, so in the case of the catchment, we've cleared the vegetation and that will lead to more sediment coming down and put in sediment traps and so on. 
In the case of the entrance, we've changed the entrance conditions, so the natural movement of sediment in and out, or particularly in, again has changed, and, 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 the, and the lake is trying to adjust to those new, uh, those new hydrodynamic conditions at the, at the mouth. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's something that uh, people could understand a lot better, is that geological time is, and you mentioned there that Lake of the War is filling in, and to, to think that the Shoalhaven River has an estuary around it that's been filled in already, I think we have a problem trying to get our head around that these changes have happened in much longer time frames than how long we've been alive. I find quite often the conversation goes back to, well, it wasn't like that when I was a boy. You know, and, and I think just because our beaches were different in 1980 uh, or the lake was different in 1980, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's wrong. <laughs> it's this part of this, this slow uh, changing through time. That's right. Of course, one of the challenges that we so often feel we've got to keep it in the state that it is in and, mm. it, and it is changing. Uh, so and you're right, of course, it's a very slow change, that geological infill. And, and uh, in some ways, the, the, the trying to reconstruct what it looked like 5,000 years ago is, is an academic exercise. But it begins to take on a more applied and useful context in terms of management when we can see that, OK, by doing that, we've been able to, to look at the sort of rate of sedimentation in, in, in lakes like Lake Illawarra or in the estuaries and so on. So we get a, a sort of idea at which uh, uh, the rates at which these processes are operating. Mm. So estuaries are, are probably fairly slow in terms of coastal landforms. Mm. Um, coral reefs are amazing coastal landforms where the animal, the coral is building the, the landform. Um, beaches, as you mentioned, are much much more changeable, of course, and, and, and that, that really is something that, particularly over the past few few weeks, over the, uh, a couple of months now, we've had some spectacular changes on our, on our local beaches and, and, and on the four dunes. Mm. Yeah, and you've done quite a bit of study on, on beaches as, as well. And even, because I think also too, I remember learning at, at university that for instance, the uh, spit of Windang and Primby is only about twenty thousand years old. Yeah, well, 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 less than that, um, five or six. So again, that relates to when sea level rising twenty thousand years ago. I wasn't around, and and yeah. and, and, and um, <laughs> uh, there, there were uh, Aboriginal inhabitants in in Australia, and, and they would have lived. Um, they wouldn't have known that they were living in an ice age because we had very little ice, only in Tasmania, a bit of ice. But it was a period of uh, global ice age and there were extensive ice sheets in the Northern Hemisphere, across North America, across uh, Europe and, and to a certain extent into, in, in, into, into Northern Asia, Russia and so on. Uh, so 20,000 years ago, the sea was about 120 metres lower. Mm. And, and, and as the ice melted, it melted... Um, rapidly, relatively rapidly, and, and as a consequence, as that water melted, the sea rose. But by about 7,000 years ago, much of those big ice sheets had melted. So we still have Antarctica, we still have Greenland, and they are still melting. Indeed, they're melting at a speed that, that um, is perhaps a little faster than they were five, five or 6,000 years ago. But that's why we've got these extensive coastal plains in Australia, because most of the ice had melted. So five or 6,000 years ago, sea was close to its present level. That's not the case if for, and this is hard to understand, but, but the way that the earth has responded to the ice load and to the water load in the oceans has been what we call isostatic. So... Um, Scandinavia is going up, northern Canada is, is continuing to go up because of the weight of ice that was there 20,000 years ago is no longer there. And, and, and so it's a, the Earth is responding, and as a consequence, the oceans are also responding to this extra water. Now, now the weight of the water, is, it, it's, it, it, it actually... And this is why the sea may have been higher in, around parts of Australia five or 6,000 years ago. But essentially, if we say it was pretty much the same, then our coast has been able, in some cases, to simply build out, uh, uh, in other cases, for our estuaries to infill, and as we said, with the Shoalhaven and so on. Um, and uh, yes, so, so um, 
it's really that five or six thousand years that we've seen uh, a shoreline close to its present uh, vertical level and, and the, you know, the coastal landscape has changed differently in different locations around Australia. It, 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 like you said, it's very hard for people to get their head around that a, a, a country can be rising because of the loss of the weight of, of ice. And I think you mentioned at the beginning there too that, that sea level rise isn't uniform across the globe as well. So people here, you know, sea level rising by 15 centimetres or something like that, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to notice that where you live. That's, that's absolutely right. So um, I had the privilege of working with the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, uh, I was involved in writing at the fourth assessment report. That was the report that they produced in 2007 uh, and for which, together with Al Gore, the IPCC was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in that year. So there has been a subsequent uh, IPCC report uh, and there's also been a, a special report on the, on the, on the oceans. So continue to, to, to revise those views about um, sea, level, sea level rise and the rates of sea level rise and so on. So, yes, the, that long-term perspective is something that we sort of need to bring into that. Um, the, the rates at which those vertical movements are happening are relatively small, but they are a component around, around Australia. They're, mm. they're a small component. When you get into Europe, they're a big component. And, and you know, originally coming from Britain, it's a, a fine example because there was an ice sheet in Scotland that melted. So Scotland is going up. And as a consequence, southern England is going down. So, so Britain is tilting. Great, the island of Great Britain is tilting. Mm. Uh, and uh, the sea level story reinforces that. We see old shorelines exposed around the Scottish uh, coastline, uh, whereas it's submerged in, in, in the London area. Uh, London sits in an estuary with a big tide, and uh, that area would be slowly going down over a geological time. So that just exacerbates that issue of sea level rise and an inundation of the Thames and, and so on. They've, they, for many years, have had a big uh, tidal barrier there, which um, uh, barrage, which they can close, and they do close on particularly high tides, and it's becoming, its effectiveness is, is being challenged because they have to close it more and more often as, mm. the, as the sea is getting higher. and So that it doesn't flood London. Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, so, so vertical movement is, is even more of an issue for some of the big deltas of the world. So um, Calcutta and the Ganges Delta, um, uh, those big areas of sediment accumulation uh, are already um, compacting and subsiding. And then that's been exacerbated where we've extracted groundwater. And so, um, uh, so some of the deltas and some of the big cities around the world that, that are lie on those deltas uh, are, are uh, very much uh, more at risk of sea level rise because we've exacerbated the rate of sea level rise through groundwater and, in some cases, oil and gas extraction. Mm. Yeah. That's something that, again, that we need to get our head around is that all these things that we do have all these different chain reactions. I, I think I, I read a while ago that the Yangtze, because of the, the damming of the Yangtze River and then the building of, of Shanghai, in, on, a, on a river delta is causing, they're reducing sediment that's protecting the city from the coast and then the city's sinking as well because of the weight of the city on the on Well, the that's delta. right. And primarily groundwater extraction, which they've now reduced under Shanghai because they, they did realise that, that, that Shanghai was one of these cities that's, that's sinking very rapidly. Um, New Orleans is another. So, mm. of course, you know, challenged by the fact that... Uh, most of New Orleans is below the level of the Mississippi as it's flowing past and, and, and it's kept dry by pumps. That were, and Of course, we saw what happened with, with Hurricane Katrina and, and so on. So, so there are, it's interesting, um, sitting here at, uh, um, in, in Wollongong, so one of the important points you made there is that the rise of sea level is not the same everywhere around the world. And there are a number of reasons. One is this vertical movement of the land. Coincidentally, and it is a coincidence, the um, rate uh, at which global sea level is seems to be rising, and, and we know this now 
Originally, we looked at tide gauges, and for the 20th century, the tide gauges were showing a gradual rise in sea level uh, of about 1.8 millimetres per year on average. Mm. Um, since the, late, uh, the early 1990s, we've had satellite altimetry, which is satellites going around monitoring the ocean level. So that's a bit different from tide gauges only sit on the coast. Uh, now we're looking at the ocean, and over the past since the 1990s, the satellites that have been up there have been showing a, an average rate of sea level rise of about three millimetres per year, a little bit over three millimetres per year. Varies a little bit when you have an El Nino or whatever, there can be a little bit of a change. But that pattern of rise at the global level seems to have been fairly constant, and that's by coming to this global average. Now, coincidentally, our Port Kembla tide gauge is showing a rate of rise similar. Uh, I say coincidence because the Darwin one is showing something different uh, 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 and so on. So uh, there are these subtle vertical movements of the land. Uh, there are adjustments in the ocean. There are other things that are contributing to the fact that the sea level rise pattern is geographically variable. Um, but it does seem that, that in Port Kembla and, and hence along our New South Wales coast, we're not that far off the global average change in, in, in sea level. We, we, we may experience um, the East Coast, uh, the uh, East Australian current and, and the warming of the water offshore it does seem to be unusually rapid, and this may indeed have some local, more, more local implications to how it changes in the future, but um, the sea is going up. Mm. Uh, there's good evidence for that. The Fort Denison tide gauge in Sydney, um, which is the longest in Australia, probably probably the longest in the Southern Hemisphere, um, has been has recorded that. And, and we've seen the highest water level recorded on that tide gauge was in 1974, which was a, um, was a year of... A year of great lessons for Australia in so many ways around our coast. Um, we had major storms. I wasn't here, of course, at that time, but major storms in New South Wales mm. that really are a bit of a yardstick against which we, we make comparisons. If What happened in 1974 on our coast um, it, it is a, an indicator of, um, uh, of what we might expect from the next really big storm, uh, one in a hundred year storm or whatever. But that was the highest water level. But the I think it's the third and fourth highest water levels were in the last couple of years. So mm. we know from that tide gauge that, uh, and indeed um, from records of flooding events in in and around Sydney and, and so on, that the flooding, this nuisance flooding, as we call it, where a tide comes in and floods the jetty and a couple of roads and so on, is is getting um, more more frequent. Uh, in, in this region, and, yeah. yeah, yeah, but it becomes very hard to generalise about how that's going to translate to any particular individual coast. Mm. Um, if our local beaches, and, and indeed, my students are um, are facing writing an essay on that topic right now, um, it's not a simple solution as to what's going to happen on our beaches. Nor will all beaches do the same thing. Um, mm. But uh, the sea is gradually rising. Nevertheless, we still see the changes that are driven by storms and driven by the recovery of beaches after and between storms. Mm. Well, I guess that brings us on to a, a good point. Like you see a, quite a bit of coverage in recent years on some of these storms that have hit the east coast of the US mm. with, a, with Superstorm Sandy and, and, and some of these images of the ocean coming right up onto roads and into houses. As you mentioned in Australia, uh, 1974 was uh, Cyclone Tracy. It was. <laughs> then all these uh, several storms that, that tracked down the east coast of Australia and did all this damage to our coast. And there's plenty of um, images of, of the, the storm damage around Wollongong um, that I've seen from, from that time. And then I guess for a lot of us, Myself and, and people who are older than me, our memory is of our coasts post that time, uh, whether we were just little babies or we were teenagers at, the, at that time. Uh, there really hasn't been anything as 
crazy as that seems. And so maybe we're in this little false sense of security at the moment in how we treat our coasts and thinking that you know, we can just uh, remove vegetation from our beaches and, and it'll all just be fine. But that's probably not the case, as we've just seen in the last couple of weeks here. That's right. Um, so 1974, again, you know, I, I, um, I wasn't in Australia at that time. Um, but as you, you mentioned, it, it, uh, there was the, 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 the Cyclone Tracy on Christmas Day in Darwin, which of course is a, again a, 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 a real awakening for, for Darwin uh, and remains um, the storm surge zones and so on around Darwin are all designed around what happened in 1974. There were major floodings in Queensland. There were a sequence of storms um, in, in, in mid-year along New South Wales coast. What was called the Cigna, um, the Cigna was a vessel that got blown up onto Stockton Beach and remains a little bit of a wreck there. Um, subsequently, we had the Pasha Bolka storm in, um, was that 2007? I'm not sure I've got the the date that's in front of me, but again, that was a major East Coast low. And, and as you indicate, we've just had three uh, East Coast lows in succession, uh, not anywhere near as, as major storms as those. But nevertheless, the fact that we've had them in succession uh, is something, and this was a feature of 1974, that it wasn't just that there was one storm, it was that there were several storms. Mm. And so when a storm hits a beach that's already just had a storm and, and, and might, may have an erosional scarp and... What happens with the big storms is they they move they erode sand off the beach into the near shore. In a sense, it's almost as if if the coastal processes were reshaping the coast uh, to to actually get rid of their energy. So so the high energy waves on the coast erode the sand, move it further out, and then the waves tend to break further out. They, the wave will dissipate their energy uh, because they're, they're meeting the, the, this bar that's out, there, out, out in the near shore, in the, in the surf zone. So uh, over time, after the storm, that sand comes back onto the beach. And interestingly, that's a bit we don't seem to know so much about, mm. um, the recovery between storms. Um, but this storm cut and recovery really overshadows that slower rise of sea level and what, what you know it's very hard to mm. actually work out if we've had a hundred years of the sea rising we ought to have some feel for what that effect is on the beach but mm. in fact along our coast our beaches are so so changeable in this storm they're changeable in the storm and storm recovery they're also changeable in the El Nino um, so as El Nino and La Nina changes not only our rainfall patterns but also the direction of our wave approach not not entirely of course but but the the tendency for waves to be from a little bit different direction or their persistence from a different direction so um our beaches rotate it's not a very good word it perhaps gives the wrong impression but hmm. it tends to mean and we know this best from studies that my colleague andy short um under, undertook and started in in Narrabeen. Uh, in the Narrabeen Collaroid Beach. So over the 40-odd um, the years that we've studied that beach, we, we, we know that it sometimes has more sand at the northern end, sometimes has more sand at the southern end, and that's what we mean by this beach rotation. I think we're still unsure to what extent that rotation might be occurring also on our local beaches. Mm. Uh, each beach is slightly different. It's set up in different ways and the way that the sand behaves is, is different. Um, some beaches seem to have plenty of sand on them. Others are more of a concern and the sand is stripped off in, in storms. And uh, trying to understand that is something that we're certainly making great strides in, but I think we're still short of that point of being able to predict for any any individual beach mm. so it's interesting i mean the three storms we've just had seem to have had different different effects mm. uh, um, they were different storms they came from slightly different directions in fact they, they behaved completely differently interestingly mm. um and uh um so did our beaches respond differently partly they would because they having had one storm they'd behave differently to the next one the next one came there was a different shaped beach Mm. Uh, already had an erosional scarp to some extent. It was a lower beach. Um, so, uh, but, but I think the most recent one has actually seen quite a lot of sand blown 
um, onto uh, a lot of um, sand blown off the beach and, and, and into uh, onto the cycle track or even onto the road and so on. Yeah, I guess that's that shows the importance of having proper dune systems because then the, the beach has a, an opportunity to adjust to those those conditions, the storm conditions. And when if you don't have that that bank of stored sand on the beach, then there's less opportunity for that system to adjust to, to storm conditions. That's right. So, so certainly we've appreciated a little bit like the mangrove swamps, uh, which we now value as, as productive wetlands, uh, we've begun to realise the role that vegetation plays on, on, on dunes and for dunes. Um, although interestingly, there's uh, quite a debate in Europe about to what extent dunes should be vegetated and whether or not the, the, it's actually valuable to have sand blown in so the Port Kembla mm. example where we had extensive unvegetated dunes back in the 1960s and 1970s. Some of that sand was, was mined and, and exported and so on. But um, part of our local coastal management, uh, and it seems to have been a, a very effective um, management because it really hasn't hasn't been controversial given that it is unnatural. It's unnatural to have focused walkways and vegetated dunes where I remember when I first came to the Illawarra and Werry Beach was being um, the vegetation, it was not the bitu bush, was being um, bulldozed. The bitu bush was being bulldozed into a trench uh, at the foot of the beach, at the back of the beach, uh, and then the beach was replanted. And the vegetation along Werry is, is planted from the 1980s, 1990s, um, and uh, it's what we would anticipate the natural vegetation should be. We see the natural vegetation in areas that haven't been mm. interfered with, but of course most of our Illawarra beaches are managed in that almost unobtrusive way where we've got a fencing system that keeps four-wheel drives and uh, off the sand and, and, and the sort of things that were going on to exacerbate the sand drift issues of the 1950s and 1960s. So um, it's, uh, it's interesting, uh, the, the general acceptance of that fencing and so on. Um, there has been some controversies, as, as, as you'd be aware, locally on several beaches uh, mm. and about how to manage that um, uh, but uh, I think the, the value of vegetation is, is certainly recognised in, in giving a little greater stability to, mm. to the sand. Uh, and you will have seen uh, recently those areas that were cleared sand um, have uh, lost much more sand in the most recent storm and lost it landwards mm. um, onto infrastructure than beaches where the vegetation was, 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 was um, more continuous. Yeah, and I guess that's the, the key issue isn't it if you build if we're going to build surf clubs and roads and bike tracks and houses which in many cases probably would have been in the hind dune area then you can't we can't have wind-blown free sand dunes because then, then our infrastructure becomes part of the dune they they get in, inundated with sand so so we have to manage it with vegetation which is what they they did in the 80s when because many of these places they've built homes right up to the to the dune area. Yes, well, well, that's that's right. Although we've we've really been um, fortunate in Australia compared with Europe or North America, where they really have built uh, on, the on, on the sand. Yeah. A, you know, a typical English beach is is a, a concrete promenade, mm. uh, and the sand is kept in place by wooden groins that run uh, at right angles to that mm. seawall uh, and. Um, uh, so certainly that, that was my experience of beaches where, where, where uh, they'd be almost completely interfered with in, in, in many parts of, the, um, of Britain. Uh, so in Australia, we by and large have not actually built on the active fortune. Now, there are some exceptions, and of course, they're the kind of hot spots. Um, the Collaroy example is one that particularly springs to mind and where we've got such a, 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 an extensive database be, because of the work that Andy Short started and, and, and that continues mm. through uh, colleagues uh, up in Sydney. Um, so we know a lot about the behaviour of the beach, but that's not entirely natural there because of the the, 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 the um, ad hoc seawalls that have defences that have had to go in to protect some of the Collaroy properties. Mm. 
In our local example, I think um, Warilla is the example that springs to mind as a, a wonderful um, example of several different approaches to to managing the system. So uh, houses were built on the four dune in the case of Warilla and they required at the southern end that protection of a seawall and the seawall is um, uh, endangered still. I think it's not a particularly well-engineered seawall. Um, the second instance that I can think of uh, at Warilla was then when the lake's entrance works went in, the first time when the training wall went in, the, the northern part there was a constructed dune and that was vegetated. So we've seen a, an right. opportunity to plant uh, marram grass, I think, was planted there, which again is not a, a, an Australian native. It's introduced and it's actually developed some controversy as to whether it is, uh, it's very good at catching sand, and, mm. uh, but that's part of its problem. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then the third opportunity uh, to, to see... Um, how engineering may or may not, um, uh, what implications it might have, is when the the, net, the 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 final stage of the 2007 of the training walls went in, they excavated I think it was 200,000 cubic meters of sand, which they put onto Warilla Beach. So this was a very fortunate opportunity to undertake what we call beach nourishment. Uh, which is very, very widely used in North America. Miami Beach is only there because they continually truck sand in and put the beach sand back mm. and it gets roaded off and they put it back again. So it's an enormous um, operation. We see this to some extent on the Gold Coast. Mm. Um, but here we see it locally in Warilla. So the beach was was nourished in 2007. And again, that hasn't lasted quite as long as we, you know, there's more um, I'm not sure that we've we've examined it in as much detail to to say, but we've got those three management strategies that have um, fortuitously been been applied to Warilla Beach, and mm. you know um, I haven't been down to Warilla to see how it survived three East Coast lows, relatively small ones, just recently. But mm. uh, it is an exercise. Each beach is is different in one way or another. Mm. We 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 know quite a bit about our beaches, we don't know very much about what is offshore. And this also figures in, in the equation. Mm. Just recently, through the state government, we've undertaken um, a, a lot of uh, bathymetric exploration. So uh, multi-beam mapping of the sort of slightly deeper water down to 50 metres and um, LIDAR, airborne LIDAR, called LADS, the Laser Airborne Depth Sounder, uh, of the of the coast itself and, and down to about 10 or 20 metres. So we actually know a lot about the water depth now. And what's interesting about the Illawarra is how much rocky substrate is off the Wollongong, uh, or northern Wollongong um, part of the coast. Uh, and uh, in contrast to as you go further south into sort of Shell Harbour and so on. So um, what's offshore and, 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 and where it's rocky, there's not a supply of sand offshore. Whereas in the in the more in the Shell Harbour region, we know there's sand offshore, and to what extent that might already be part of the the way that nature um, supplies and gradually changes the sand in the intertidal. Well, and the beach that we see is in some way linked to the beach and, and the near shore and the surf zone and and the and the offshore that we don't see. And mm. so, even if we think we know something about the beaches we see, we still don't really. We haven't built the sediment budget that actually incorporates the um, the onshore and the offshore. And, and so some of these beaches are quite constrained and are pocket beaches that don't really exchange sand along the coast. Others may exchange sand along the coast. Some of our northern Wollongong beaches have relatively small headlands uh, between them, so there may be sand exchange along the coast. Um, so... so it's a changing environment. It's a very exciting environment. It's great fun to teach about it um, and to observe it as best we can. But mm. we're only really beginning to understand in the broadest sense how these, these things operate. Yeah, I guess if you, ta if you take a, uh, an, an aerial photograph of, of the coast and, and many beaches included in that photograph, we, we quite often are only paying attention to from the surf club or the house to the tide mark and and what's happening in that little zone and, and potentially quite often you know blaming the vegetation or whatever for what is happening 
but there is so much more going on in that. And when you look at that aerial photograph, you can see that some beaches are short, they're surrounded by headlands and they might have reefs uh, partially covering the beach. They might be facing north and another one's facing south and another one's very open to the south and another one's very open to the north. And as you mentioned, there's all these currents and differences in the sea floor and you can even see that in some beaches with with swell one beach might be completely flat and another beach has has got uh, decent sized waves so the waves are even being drawn into beaches differently because of the angle of the beach or the, or the difference in the sea floor and the speed of the wave traveling on shallow surfaces or deep channels and things like that there's so much at play that we just don't and even this, that's this, these storms that we had, some of them only lasted 48 hours and then they were very quickly dissipated after that. So maybe the damage wasn't as bad as it, what it could have been if that stuck around. Yes, it's, it's great that you use that example of the aerial photograph because that's, again, exactly the sort of thing that we do in, in teaching coasts. And, and we have this sporadic air photo history of... Uh, and. Uh, going back to the 1940s in some cases. Um, so it's a great record. You could see the changes. You can see the changes of residential areas on the land and so on. Mm. But even that's a challenge as to what it is that we should mark as the shoreline in terms of something that's changed. So we say, oh, yeah, it's changed. Mm. But do we use the vegetation line? Do, do we use high water line? Well, that varies with the tide, where the way that varies with the waves. Um, it's only since we've had satellite uh, data so so and increasingly this is really these things are happening as we speak really my, my colleagues up in sydney developed some really neat ways of looking at, and so 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 as geoscience australia of looking at satellite imagery where we've got so many images now uh, that we can actually pick up changes even though the the pixel the the the, the cell size of what we get from the satellite is very big and you're going oh it's 30 meter pixel how can we tell about a 10 meter change on the beach mm. but with enough ways of doing it, there's some scope and, and we were seeing some people tease things out of this satellite imagery. Increasingly, we can fly drones all over the beach and we can get really detailed, instantaneous reconstructions of what the beach looks like from a drone. So again, there's some colleagues down in Victoria doing some fascinating stuff with community groups flying drones to, to record beach change. But still, to bring this together and to actually still get an understanding we can sort of say oh yeah well this beach is a bit higher now but we know that the beach builds a berm and that can be gone in a couple of days or rebuild or reshape so to to get that longer term perspective of what is happening given all these events that we've we've talk, talked about as you say a particular storm a, an el nino waves from a particular direction mm. these things are all going through this gradual dynamic change and we're trying to we're trying to first of all, understand that so that this information could go into a better way of managing how managing that system in the future, managing mm. it for our recreation, managing it so that it's not an issue for house owners and property owners and for surf clubs and so on and so forth. So uh, it's an exciting thing. It's great to be um, you know involved in this sort of dynamic environment where so many people have got an interest mm. um, and, and often, of course, they've got a strong view of what they think is happening. But uh, um, I've spent many years trying to understand the literature and, and study what people are understanding. We And to try and build models um, from conceptual models through into more quantitative models. Models are as good as the data you put in. They're certainly a tool that we're going to continue to use in future, but they still don't give us the perfect answers yeah. <laughs> to what's happening or what we should do. Mm. And it, Andy Short, he has um, he's pretty much measured all the beaches, or not necessarily measured, but visited just about every beach in Australia, hasn't he? Indeed, uh, he has visited every beach on the mainland of Australia, and indeed he's been very central in, in, in the work that we did over the past uh, three or four years, um, defining individual coastal sediment compartments around the coast of Australia. And he's just produced that in, in a book called Australian Coastal Systems, a two-volume book, 
um, where, where, which describes book. the big book. book. <laughs> it's a big book and it's got a lot of references in it, a lot of, um, but it's a, a wonderful resource. It's a fantastic. And I think we're very fortunate in Australia. We've got a beautiful coast and we're working towards getting the, the most fundamental, and I mean it is only fundamental, the data for our coast. So thanks to Andy's, Andy's work around the mainland, we, we, we have got some some information on and some understanding of the very basic behaviour of our almost 11,000 beaches. Um, we've got uh, a pretty good understanding from various studies of our 700 or so estuaries around the coast. Um, we're working on our uh, over 3,000 reefs on the Great Barrier Reef, I suppose. You know, again, um, there's so much better data than there was back in the 19. 1970s when David Stoddard, who supervised my PhD, led, led the uh, Great Barrier Reef expedition, a, an expedition of the Great Barrier Reef, really um, uh, pioneering the sort of study of coral reefs. So uh, we've come a long way in, the, in, 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 in those 40 or 50 years, but really what we've, perhaps what we understand more is, our, is, is the shortcomings and our ignorance um, we still don't have that understanding that we can predict. We can forecast at a, at a broad sort of level what's going to happen, but uh, I don't think our models and understanding are quite at that level of prediction at this point. The one thing we, we do know is that our coast is going to continue to change, mm. and it's not going to sit like it looked. Uh, uh, some of these changes are much slower than others. No, I don't think they're... Too many individuals will say that they've seen Lake Illawarra infill, although they've been, there would have been gradual infill during their lifetimes. Um, there will be people who've got views on how our beaches and so on have changed, and will have seen seen some of those changes, and will um, perhaps have some views on on how they, uh, what's been driving those changes. But again, our, our, our science is remains with many gaps to fill. Mm. Uh, and many great opportunities for study and research, and, and I, I hope that you know it all leads into better management of, of the coast. Yeah, it's not something that you can you can't really predict. Although they can predict when a storm is coming, you can't really predict what effect that's going to have on the coast. You can say how strong the winds are expected to be, or where the the, the low pressure system is going to form, but you can't really say, well, this this beach is going to be eroded, and this beach is going to have sand deposited on the road. Or that's exactly right. And I wish that you were, you know, we'd known that there were going to be these three storms in succession. So I say again, they're probably not. They're not. Um, they're not the hundred year storm. They're, they're um, as. A, a, a colleague from, from um, Risk Frontiers uh, told us the other day that uh, their return period is only like once every two years or three years of those storms. But the fact that they occurred clustered like that means that their effect has been cumulative rather mm. than, you know, the, the beach recovering. To some extent, it may have recovered between the storms, but there was a very short interval between them. So, so it would have been a wonderful opportunity if we'd known, particularly as the storms were so so different. But 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 one in a sense that almost um, that is the problem. The complexity of the system uh, is such that you know two storms are not actually the same. Just like two beaches are, are not actually the same. And, mm. and, and we we've got some good understanding that gives us a general view, and and which I suppose has really been quite effective. I think I think we um, we can feel as Australians that we've looked after our coast, uh, perhaps, um, with, uh, with greater care and, and understanding than perhaps other parts of the world, which have had a longer history of intervention and, and maladaptation and so on. As you mentioned, they planted marram grass, and then they slowly started replacing that with spin effects. And I remember being 18, 17, 18, and, and really passionate about surfing and, and hating that vegetation that, you know, it was, it was locking up the sand on the beaches. But over time, started to realise the, the benefits of having that, that vegetation on the beach. And then, you know, from, from running on the same beach every day for the last 20-plus years, I'm just 
always amazed at how the, how it responds to the storms and how quickly the recovery can be. Uh, and I remember uh, this was probably about five years ago. The beaches were all scarped really bad. We had a few of storms like this in in winter, all on top of each other. We had this scarping and everyone was up in arms about it but I, I remember thinking and taking a photograph and then about three weeks later the beaches were well the, my particular beach was so wide you could land a jumbo jet on it three <laughs> weeks after had it just been all the sand had been removed and that recovery is so fast mm. and I don't mm. think you know we we always can understand how nature is sort of been working out this equilibrium for forever and it's and it's all trying to to level out and it's not against us we just have to sort of take the highs and the highs with the lows sometimes yes um it's interesting to use that word equilibrium um, um because uh, i think sometimes I, I get the impression that it's, um, that equilibrium is actually a moving target. Yes, it's a moving target. So the the, the system is is doing its best to adjust, but that's to today's waves and yep. tomorrow's waves are different, and so on. Mm. Uh, the 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 thing about the fast recovery is is interesting, and that you would be seeing that. That's that's because the other great example along our coast, um, in addition to Andy Short's work at Narrabeen, was the work that was started down at Maruya by Bruce Tom and, and Roger McLean who started surveying a beach there in 1972. They started in 1972, and that was just before those 1974 storms. Mm. So they actually caught the 1974 storms, whereas Andy started in 1974. So he didn't, in his record, he doesn't have that, that the biggest storm we've yeah. seen in 50, 60, whatever it is, years now. Um, so the Maruya example, which has been studied since, um, and again, this is thanks to the individual dedication of people like Bruce and Roger and, 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 and Tom Oliver, who was a student here, is now at uh, uh, taking those, those surveys on. So we know what happened there after the 74 storms was there was another little bit of a cutback in 1978, but it basically took 10 years for that yeah. beach to recover back to its pre-1972 type um, sand volume. And one of the things going back to our potential here in in the School of Earth, Atmospheric and Life Sciences, we, we have what's called an OSL laboratory, op Optical Stimulated Luminescence. And so um, Tom Oliver, who was just finished his PhD a few years ago here, um, had been dating um, um, some, some of these sands as we go further back. And the Maruya um, is an example of a, we call it a prograded barrier. There are actually lots of little beach ridges or four dune ridges, uh, there are something like um, 60 or, or more of these that have accumulated over the six or so thousand years, mm. sea level's been stable. So um, together with a Japanese colleague, we've been doing this more precise or, or dating um, that sort of going back and seeing in the kind of three, four hundred metres or so of the most recent, can we see any evidence for a, a previous storm of that kind of magnitude? Because the 1974 and cut all that sand away and it took that time for it to come back so there's a, a bit of a break in the record in the and, and we can this OS optical stimulated luminescence dating which dates the time that sand gets buried from from the sun basically as long as it's well wow. uh, it's in the dark then this um, luminescent signal accumulates and, and and if it's exposed again it's, so it's a it's a highly technical yeah, um, way to do it, but but um, we have seen evidence back there. I know two hundred or so years ago, there seems like there was another interruption of event that we can imagine was of that same sort of magnitude. So, sure, nature throws what it throws at us, and mm. it throws. Um, uh, I suppose one of the questions here then really is, you know, is climate stable? Um, so, of course, it is changing all the time. Each storm's different, yep. but but. In terms of the sort of engineering um, approach, which is well, we'll just we'll look at all these storms of different sizes, and then we'll draw a line, and we, you know we'll say that's all fine as long as you're in a stable world, and and, and so the mean over a long time is is static. Yeah. But if in fact it's changing, then you know that approach doesn't work quite so well. So what was a one in a hundred year storm 
50 years ago, mm. as the climate changes, uh, uh, may become one in 60 year or one in 20 year or whatever. Mm. And that's what we're going to see. We're going to see in terms of sea level rise, where the, the highest extreme water levels are going to become more frequent as the sea level rises. So mm. an event like, um, well, I guess the 2016 event, we did, which may be the one you were referring yeah, that's to, possibly, that's yeah. the one where, where the spectacular swimming pool fell on Collaroy Beach. And, yeah. Um, so, so you know, and we that was that coincided with a spring high spring tide, and you recall in Wollongong Harbour and so on. It was already we knew because there was going to be a high tide, and and also an east coast low. So um, conditions were were, were 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 hectic there. Well, well, you can imagine that same event with sea level only a few more centimetres higher again, and and clearly in relation to sea level itself, we're not in a stable static. Um, climate we're in a slightly changing one mm. and and so and that's uh, even if we were stable there were still these events that you know the, the mm. storm tomorrow might be bigger it might be smaller it might come from a different direction and and so on yeah and and dune systems like the one you mentioned in maria are they they are they doing that extended sort of lengthwise dune system is that because of the the sediment supply to those areas so could it could that is that possible where we are? Well, this is exactly these are these are, the, these are the questions we're really trying to address with this concept of the sediment budget. So, yeah. exactly right. First of all, uh, a good example, slightly closer than Maruia, but 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 similar is Seven Mile Beach, mm. which sits north of the Shoalhaven River, and we have been able to show uh, PhD student Raphael, who was here uh, until a couple of years ago, was able to show that um, the river. Has been contributing sediment, um, particularly in the past few thousand years since the estuary is filled in. Mm. <laughs> so it's all sort of interrelated. Um, so those ridges have been have accumulated slightly more faster um, since the river had filled in the estuary, uh, mm. and we can sort of see um, more angular grains that have come down the river. So we can actually be reasonably confident in that concept of the, the rivers supplying a bit more sediment which is giving so there is a positive sediment budget and that's why there um, those ridges have built but but, but just south of the Shoalhaven River they haven't <laughs> um, uh, there's only a single ridge um, so in that case we're beginning to tease out why the sediment budget is positive we're less clear in the example of Maruya the Narrabeen example also has several ridges in the past so quite what the longer term sediment budget is the natural sediment budget isn't really clear mm. but of course our human interventions have already changed what was the natural sediment budget mm. and and so even though much of the australian coast half of the beaches that andy lists are beaches you can't get to and they don't have a name mm. um, you know we have a large parts of inaccessible and unexplored coast uh, nevertheless that's there's some some odd things that we don't understand, which we, we don't know whether these are the result of human interference or not, whether, whether we can, uh, whether, whether the changes in process that we, we, we can infer, when I mentioned those ridges, they're all sort of lots of ridges like that, but the most recent one is bigger. Uh, we don't really understand why that is. Um, so, so trying to apply some concept derived from our longer-term geological history begins to get more complicated when you start to infer that um, that uh, humans might have had some some uh, additional impacts on them. Mm. Some of that sediment is moving up the coast to to Fraser Island, but a lot of the sediment is just staying within the bays and and maybe moving a small amount out of rivers and things, whereas something like Lake Illawarra actually isn't supplying sediment to the beaches. That's right, yeah. that's right. So uh, East Beach in Kiamata, which is a little pocket beach in amongst a couple of rocky headlands, there can't be sand going into and out of that system. Um, our beaches along this coast are also embayed between headlands, but whether or not sand can move isn't quite so clear. As we get to northern New South Wales, we know that the sand is moving north because... The Tweed River, the Tweed River training walls have trapped on Letitia, Letitia Spit well, a lot of sand. Um, and there's a pumping station because Queensland would be losing beaches and, and, and mm. losing beaches on the Gold Coast if sand, and that's 500,000 cubic metres of sand that is pumped 
annually uh, across the state border um, because of that northward movement. And as you say, Fraser Island, the biggest sand island in the world, is the net accumulation of this gradual northward drift um, that has been playing for hundreds of thousands and presumably millions, a couple of million years. So, yeah, there are these long-term... Now, if we say, oh, two million years ago, something about Fraser Island doesn't seem to have application today, but there is this broader um, uh, national scale pattern of variation along the coast that, that um, we need to understand. Mm. Wow. Fan. There's so much to talk about we could talk about for hours, but uh, you, you have to go. So thanks for, for doing this interview. Is there anything that, that you would like to say? Uh, obviously, these are dynamic systems. There's tons of work. You've got lots of really thick books here. I've got your book, Coasts. Uh, at home from when I was at university, so people can can learn a lot about this stuff. Is there anywhere that that people could go to to find some, maybe not PhD style um, information, but where they could get their head around how, you know, all these systems are are at working. Well, uh, uh, book the Coast of Australia. Uh, it's nearly ten years old now, but Andy Short and Colin Woodroffe, the Coast of Australia, was uh, written as a much more understandable book it, it shorter on the academic references and uh, mm. with a few more color pictures in and so on so certainly that was um, I guess one of the outreach kind of um, um, publications that, that we produced um, look I, I think the state government also produces um, some good um, community information mm. um, and uh, um, there's a, a national Oz Coast database as well that uh, CSIRO and GeoScience Australia um, produce. In terms of beaches, I guess um, Surf Lifesaving and Beach Safe app, uh, which has got lots of good information on beaches, is uh, mm. probably uh, something that's worth having on the phone. And yeah, mm. um, but uh, I'll, sure. put, I'll put a link to the uh, the coast of Australia in, mm. on the show notes of the podcast as well, so people can check that out. Because yeah, it does look very. It looks much more user friendly for someone mm. who's a, yeah. an amateur at this stuff than than some of these books, but. I'm not sure it's as user-friendly as I thought it was when we wrote it in that sense, but it's still rather academic, but um, yes. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fair Food Forager and Friends Show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please download the Fair Food Forager app say hello and tell us what you're up to thanks again to ash groomwald for this tune 180 i look forward to talking to you next time bye